we're very quick to notice or point out when someone gives sacrifice. Oh, can you believe they did that? Can you believe they gave so much? Do you remember how much the widow gave? What she had. And listen, if we don't give simply, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and start giving sacrificially. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. We live in a day where, unfortunately, deeply unfortunately, to the point where it's grievous, it seems like it seems like a new Christian fraud is uncovered regularly. And it can be very disarming. Uh, I, I, I grieved over the most recent large name to reveal, when it was revealed that he was not what he seemed to be. Um, and, and you may have grieved as well when you know people who seem like they were one thing and it seems that there's something else. It does great, it does great detriment to the body of Christ. It arms unbelievers. I remember one time I, I was in high school. I remember one time when I was in high school, I used to work at Subway. Um, I can tell you things about Subway. I don't eat there that often, okay? But when I was working there, I was, it was a very dark environment in which to work. I was in high school. Most of the other workers were in high school. Some of them were in college or just a little bit older. And it was not in a good part of town. And, um, and it was the kind of place where ordinarily the workers would come in either drunk or high and it was just it was the day in their life right and so it was it was a challenging place to work it was a challenging environment to work but i learned a lot i learned a lot learned a lot about the world learned a lot about sin and one day uh someone came in i made a sandwich and someone else in the line recognized him as a pastor and, you know, was talking to him or whatever. And then it got the line, you know, where the, the subway person makes the food and then he checks you out. So I was, I was ringing him up and checking out his food. And so I said, you're a pastor. Uh, I just started the conversation. I said, I'm a pastor's son. And we just had a brief conversation and he left. One of the coworkers came up to me and said, that man is not a pastor. I said, well, he said he was. And he said that, she said, that man's a charlatan and a cheat. And those were the words that she used. This was a girl that I had been trying to give the gospel to. So it didn't help. That little thing didn't help. 
It does great detriment when followers who seem like their followers turn out to be frauds. But proportionately, it does great good when followers who seem to be followers show that they're sincerely followers of Jesus. And so though it's discouraging at times, we mustn't allow it to shake us to the point where we recognize the kingdom will not go on. It won't stop just because someone proved out someone turned out to be a failure. That that Christ is doing good things. That there are sincere believers and that God is using them. This morning I want you to see from our passage in chapter 12, we're just going to go through verses 1 down to 9, that true Christ followers desire to be used by Christ, while Christian frauds desire to use Christ. True Christ followers desire to be used by Christ, while Christian frauds desire to use Christ. You see the difference? Let's read the passage together. John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they said, not only on account of him also, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had made, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see multiple different groups of people or demographics here. And multiple different responses to Jesus. And we're going to study those groups and those responses together. Before we do that, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. You are holy, God. Distinct from us, separate from us. So distinct and separate from us, it, it's astounding. And therefore, it is astounding almost to the point of unbelievable that we who are so finite and flawed can draw near to you who is so righteous and perfect. But that's how merciful you are. That's how kind you are and loving you are. And so, Father, now as we draw near to you through the message of your word, as we hear from you through the teaching of your word, 
We thank you that this truth is sufficient. That you are about to speak through the Bible. So give us ears to listen. And a heart to submit, we ask through Christ. Amen. Well, as you saw, we not only gained some contextual information, but we have a very unique circumstance that takes place in the passage. So let's deal with some of the contextual information first. John's helping us with not just the information of this passage, but the information regarding his book. He's, he's moving us along in the timeline of Jesus Christ relating to his death, burial, and resurrection, ultimately his ascension. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was. Now, we've already been, we've already, we've already been introduced to Bethany, right? Because we've already been where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This is their hometown, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. This is their hometown. And so Jesus is making his way back as a, as, a Jewish, as a Jewish man would, as a, as a, as a good Jew, as a follower of, of Judaism would, Judaism in the good sense, uh, was, w- would come back for the Passover to celebrate the, 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 the celebration of the Passover, to observe this very important holiday, religious holiday. And so he was on his way back, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, Bethany neighbors Jerusalem. It's very close. It's, it's like a suburb of Jerusalem, if you will. And so... Uh, he's there with uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they're enjoying just a time of fellowship together. They're enjoying a time together. Remember, they're friends. We talked about that. They have, a, they have a good relationship. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are friends with Jesus and vice versa. Deep, close friends. And, uh, and I noted it's very important that we remember what John is doing. He's also moving us forward in the progression of his book. Okay? Remember we've said multiple times John spends more time with the death, burial, and the resurrection than any other gospel writer. And so he almost fast-forwards to this. We're about to get to the Passion Week, and so John is cluing us into this. Six days before the Passover. There's some, uh, if you care about this, there's some scholastic debate about John's exact timeline here versus uh, when exactly the Passover starts in relation to where he puts it. It's interesting, but I think what's important is we recognize what John is trying to do is draw attention to what Jesus is doing, and that's getting close to the cross, both in proximity and in timeline. So he's observing a meal with them. And it is in this meal, it is in this time of fellowship that we're introduced to the first group of people. And we're going to talk together first about the disciples. The disciples. Now when I say disciples, don't automatically think the twelve. Think follower of Jesus. Now, sometimes when we use the disciple, we think, well, you know, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, well, and not even all those were disciples. Those are some of the gospel writers, right? We think, uh, we think of John, and, and we think of Matthew, and we think of Bartholomew, and all, and all those guys. But you're a disciple of Jesus if you're saved. I'm a disciple of Jesus. It just means follower. It means learner. Okay? And so we have some of the followers of Jesus here. Mary, Martha and Lazarus were followers of Jesus. They listened to him. They learned from him. Now, we, not, we know they were not only followers, but they were close followers. Do you remember what Martha says about him right before, says to Jesus right before he, he raises Lazarus from the dead? You are Messiah. Martha has this bold uh, confession that Jesus is Messiah, the one from God. And so we have a right to think, we have every reason to think that they were True followers of Jesus. Now I want you to notice two things, two ways that they gave. 
And Mary is going to typify the giving here, but let's look at Martha and Lazarus first. We see that these disciples, so Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, gave simply. They gave simply. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Isn't that in keeping with Martha? And, and again, blessings to her. She's, she's serving. Martha is a servant. She loves busy service. Now, busy service can lend itself, has its problems, has its temptations, but she's serving. Lazarus was one of the ones reclining at the table. You said, well, why wasn't he doing anything? He was doing something. He was spending time with Jesus. He was listening to Jesus. He was with his friend. There's actually great balance here. We should be serving Jesus, but we should be spending time with Jesus. We should be giving time that we have with Jesus. And so they gave multiple things to Christ. They gave him time. They gave him a meal. They gave him the, the simplicity of their home. It is, I'm sure his... The other, the twelve, the other disciples, the other followers of Christ were, were, at, were here with them. We know Judas was. And so they, they're having a meal for presumably lots of people. I always think of this. Think of, think of Luke 10 when, when Jesus has the meal and, you know, he, he gently rebukes Martha and he commends Mary. Just think about that meal. Can you imagine, ladies, if, if you know, husband comes home and says, hey, we're having Jesus... And, you know, the 12 over. No pressure. And so that's what's, that's what's going on here. Jesus and his disciples are having a meal hosted by Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. So we know what Mary and Martha are doing. They, they give simply. Now, and I want to encourage you, and we'll talk about more of this tonight uh, in, more, in our application time. Uh, so if you want more application, come Sunday evenings, right? Shameless plug. Um, we'll talk about more of this tonight, but, but sometimes I think what we do is we think um, giving to Jesus always has to be radical. It always has to be some massive step of faith or some massive check or whatever. Notice Mary and Martha giving their time, giving their home, giving their resources. They gave simply. But Mary, Mary gives sacrificially. And I want to point out to you the extent of this sacrifice. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. He said, it doesn't sound very good. It was, don't worry. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with a fragrance from the perfume. That much perfume was not only very expensive, but this is where, where it sounds like this is a great quantity of perfume. If you want to know more about this, it comes from an, a Nepalese plant, and it was uh, imported from a great distance. It was a tedious process, and it was important for, and imported from a great distance. Remember I said a few weeks ago, when we were talking about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that we get the idea that this was a family of means. This was probably a wealthy family. This is one of the reasons we think that. Okay, This was a very expensive ointment. Very expensive perfume. Um, 
Judas is going to Judas is going to mention it. Uh, look with me at verse four. But one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, "Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii? A denarii was a day's wage. So this is just less than a year's salary." So this would be like, if you just take a Google, if you just take the annual salary for the United States of America, the annual salary was right under $40,000. Okay. Average annual salary. Average annual salary. You say, I make more than that. I make, I make less than that. That's why it's an average. Okay. This would be like $30,000. Hey, honey, I just want you to know I put thirty grand in the offering plate this morning. Good, I think. Right? This is extensive. And, and if you know Judas, Judas thinks she's crazy. What is she doing? I mean, just imagine this. Pulls it out. Breaks the bottle. Starts pouring it. And everyone's going... She's lost it, man. What is she, this is this is crazy sacrifice. If I if I told my my wife, "Hey, tomorrow I'm going to I'm going to empty almost a year of our retirement, give it to a charity." That would be a, a longer conversation. And rightfully so. Because that's future we're talking about. That's the kind of sacrifice we're talking about. This is extensive. Now listen, I think sometimes we are tempted to honor this kind of sacrifice over giving simply. We're very quick to notice or point out when someone gives sacrifice. Oh, can you believe they did that? Can you believe they gave so much? Do you remember how much the widow gave? What she had. And listen, if we don't give simply, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and start giving sacrificially. So, the disciples open up their home. Mary, let's just talk, talk through the details a little bit, took a pound. We're supposed to notice this is a lot of expensive ointment from pure nard and anointed Jesus. The feet of Jesus wiped it with her hair. The hair is considered the symbol of honor here. She's giving Jesus honor. There is a view here that the hair is actually a woman letting her hair down was, was viewed as radical, almost to the point of immoral. Uh, and so she's, she's showing humanity here to Jesus. I think I, I, I disagree with that. Uh, I think what she's, the hair was considered the beauty of the woman, the honor of the woman. And so I think she's giving honor to him. And, and uh, in addition to giving the perfume, I think she's honoring him in the way that she wipes the perfume, his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples. So now we're introduced to the second group of people, the second and we find the deceivers. So first of all, we see the disciples. They gave simply. They gave sacrificially, as evidenced by Mary, Martha, or by by uh, Martha and Lazarus, and then Mary's extensive sacrifice here. Um, and then we see we see the deceivers. Now I just love how John talks about Judas. 
Judah, John's writing on an inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but you can just tell. I don't know if he has a chip on his shoulder talking about Judas, but just listen to this. He said this, not because he cared for the poor. Oh, and he used to steal out of the money bag. I just love how John just puts it right out there. Okay? So, but notice what Judas does. He takes this, this act of sacrifice and he says, here's what I would have done. And he makes it sound like it's a really good thing to do. All right, why do we just waste all of this? What we should have done is sell it and give it to the poor. And John says, by the way, that was not his concern. It had nothing to do with the poor. Let's put more money in the bag so we can take more money out of the bag. That was Judas's concern here. So there's two things that we see, first of all, from Judas about the deceivers in this passage. Their goal is gain. Their goal is gain. Judas wants this situation to work out in such a way that we can benefit from it, we can put money in our pocket, but make it sound like it's really good. Actually, make it sound like it's godly. Does it sound like what takes place behind pulpits today? Now again, we're going to spend more time in application of this tonight. But I want to give you five characteristics that I think we see from Judas in this verse. Five characteristics I think we see from Judas in this verse that correlates with a false prosperity gospel. Alright? First, their religion is self-motivated and self-maintained. Their religion is self-motivated and self-maintained. You say, where do you see that? First of all, let's remember Judas was Jewish. Judas was a was a a deceitful hypocr hypocritical follower of Yahweh. Okay? And so in a very real sense, his kind of hypocrisy is no different than the kind of hypocrisy we see throughout the New Testament in the Pharisees. Just putting on a show. And on the inside, completely dead. See where do you get the terminology? Jesus. You're really you're, you're really good on the outside. You're like a marble beautiful tomb full of dead person's bones. And so we see from Judas that he, he buys into this kind of self-motivation and self-maintained religion and he applies it to Jesus. We have to do certain things and maintain certain things so that we can seem godly. All the while, let's fill our pockets with some money from Christ's wallet. Secondly, they claim to follow Christ. They claim to follow Christ. Judas has been with Jesus now for more than two years. Jesus, Judas was there for the signs. He was there for not just the ones that he saw that we see in the book of John. He was there for, for the miracles. Judas followed Thomas. Remember Thomas? Let's go back to Jerusalem and all die together. Judas went with them. So by all appearances, here's someone who seems sincere, even to an extent willing to risk certain things to maintain that image. They present, thirdly, 
their religion is self-motivated, self-maintained. Secondly, they claim to follow Christ. Thirdly, they present their ministry as selfless or helpful. Look what he says. We should sell it and give it to the poor. Which means, give it to me. So the, the message is pitched as this thing that will be really helpful for everybody else. And the ultimate benefactor is the person giving the message. Fourthly, their sin is known in the end. John says he was the one who was about to deceive. Do you remember how Judah's story ends? A lot of people forget about that first part of Acts chapter 1. Or the second part of excuse me, of Acts chapter 1. We get all caught up in the ascension. And the great, the great promises there. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit when, the, when He comes upon you and be witnesses. We forget about that second part that talks about how Judas died. And he went out because of guilt and he took his own life. Their sin is known in the end. This is consistent with Christian frauds. They can't fake it forever. Even when they die, the truth will be uncovered. We'll talk about a few more of these this evening. But these are things I think we learn specifically from Judas. When the goal of people claiming to be Christ followers is just for their own gain. But there's a second group of deceivers here, and you see them here. Jesus said, leave her alone, verse nine, or verse 7, excuse me, so that she may keep it for the days of burial. For the poor you will not always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, verse 7 may seem confusing. He says, why does, she say, why does he say she could keep it? Because she just used it all. Uh, this is actually, this is a, so translation-wise, it may be complex, but Actually, what Jesus is saying is fairly simple. He's not referring specifically to what she just gave. He's not referring to the perfume. Actually, what he's, what he's saying when he says keep it is this memory, this, this act of devotion. She's now, she, has, she now has a, a, a memory that she can keep with her of devotion as, as Christ goes to the last days. So this is a way that she remembers her honor for Jesus Christ. You say, where are you getting that? It actually, the language implies it. I'm not sure what translation you have in front of you. But if you go into the, if you go into the original, there's, there's specific language here that implies it. She's keeping something in her heart. She's keeping something internal. So it has the idea that she's cherishing something. Think of Mary when she pondered the things in her heart. She's treasuring things in her heart. Uh, not this Mary. Jesus' mother Mary in Luke 2. Too many Marys, I know. And so she's keeping a memory of this devotion. For the poor, you always have with you. But you do not always have me. So I love Jesus. Jesus' response here is very ironic. If you want to help the poor, Judas, you've always got the opportunity. The poor are always here. But you will not always be able to reverence me in my physical form. So help the poor, but reverence Christ. Verse 9. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on their own account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. The sign is working. Remember, we've already seen this. Uh, we, we see this at the end, uh, when we talk about last week, that, that, that the religious rulers are so perplexed in the end of chapter 11, they're so frustrated and confused because, and, and they're, they're panicky because, because the sign is working and because of Lazarus coming back from the dead, people are believing. And so we see, we see this again. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Okay, so we already know they've made plans to kill Jesus. Now they're making plans to kill Lazarus. Why? Wipe out all the evidence. Why? On account of him, many of the Jews were believing in Jesus. They saw Lazarus and they said, well, Lazarus was dead. Now he's not. Jesus did something. And I believe in Jesus. True belief. So they put all this together, which again sends uh, uh, the religious leaders into a panic. So again, we have the same thing that we talked about last week. Remember we said that they wanted to put Jesus away because they were being threatened, because Jesus was threatening them and their position of authority and their, their beliefs and all of these things. And so we see the exact same motivation. Their concern is control. If they don't kill Jesus, and now if they don't kill Lazarus, because he's the one who's alive that Jesus brought back from the dead, then we're going to keep losing followers. We talked about that last week. We can't lose followers. We can't lose people because when we do, we what? Lose power. Lose influence. So the deceivers, their goal is gain and their concern is control. So first of all, we see the deceiver in Judah. Secondly, we see the deceivers in the, uh, the religious leaders, verse 10, the chief priests. Now listen, this is in direct conflict. This kind of controlling, over-religious, militant religious control is in direct conflict to the, Christian, the salvation that Jesus offers those who follow. You say, why? Because in this kind of religion, the chief priests are concerned, you are controlled by a system. And when you give your life, but when you give your life to Jesus, you are under the freeing control. That's the idea of bondservant that Paul talks about. You're under the freeing constraint of Jesus Christ. So Jesus looses you, frees you to serve him. So this kind of religious restriction says you have to do this thing, you have to do this and be this way because this is the system that we impose, chief priests. When in, and in contrast to Jesus, who if you follow and if, and if you experience the salvation that he offers, repent and believe, you're now in submission to the confines that he gives you. The Spirit, God's Spirit, the Scriptures, the con your conscience, and the church. And in serving those things and in submitting to those things is actually when we experience the freedom and the joy that Christ provides. So give your life to the control of religion. You will be more restricted. Give your life to the expectations and the requirements of Jesus Christ and you will experience true and lasting freedom. 
And so what John does is he sets in contrast these true followers, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and what they were willing to do, give simply and give sacrificially, against Judas, the fraud that is among them, and the chief priests, whose concern is what they can get, what they can put in their pocket, and control that they're unwilling to relinquish over people. So here's the question for us. How are you seeing Christ? Is Christ your freedom, your salvation, your Savior? Or is Christ accidentally a means whereby we get something we think we need or we want. You say, well, that's, that's just the hypocrites. They do. That's just Judas. We don't, that's just the prosperity gospel preachers and those people that believe that you're talking about. I don't think so. I think there are times in my life when maybe something difficult comes, comes into my life and I go, hey, I, I love Jesus. Why, why is this happening? This is difficult. I, I have faith. What, what's going on? And I think that believing in Jesus accidentally, I think believing in Jesus means I have a right to certain things. Ease and comfort. Peace all the time. Happiness all the time. Jesus never promises those things. And so let's not accidentally imitate the selfish spirit of these deceivers and just apply it differently in our life. And what do people see in you? A true Christ follower? If you had come in the line at Subway, if you'd come in the line at Subway, and I was trying to witness to that girl, and I asked you about your church experience, would you be a help or a hurt to my witness to the people that I work with? Would you have helped in your integrity and in your testimony? Or would you be a hindrance as well? Or worse, would you seem like you're a help and in years down the road, the truth comes out? Because people may not know, but our God in heaven looks in the inward parts. So let's follow Christ and show to the world the freedom that he provides and be very wary of the frauds.